This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. We thank you, loving Father, for the privilege of being able to gather like this to open the Scriptures. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who inspired them and who is at work in our hearts. And we pray that for your great namesake and in your great love and power, you would help us to grasp the message and then respond as pleases you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Hebrews 11, probably the most famous chapter in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to look at the 40 verses, which are really telling us what life looks like if you have faith in God. If you were here last week, chapter 10 finished by saying we're people of faith. Chapter 11 gives us lots of examples of being a person of faith, And then chapter 12 next week begins, let's run the race like people of faith. So if you're feeling this morning that your road is a very uphill road, or you've lost the incentive to be faithful, or you're wondering if it's really worth it to be a Christian, you're wondering if it's really worth it, if it's really true, perhaps Hebrews 11 will be a great benefit to you. It's on page 1192 in our Bibles, and we're going to ask three questions as we look at the chapter, because there are too many verses to go through one by one, and our three questions are why, what, and how. The why question is, why is the chapter in our Bibles? It's not just an inspired purple passage. It could be turned into a series. We could preach a very worthwhile series just on Hebrews 11, but it shouldn't really be separated from the book. So why is it there? That's our first question. Then the second question is, what does the chapter actually say? Because it says a lot more than if you become a person of faith, all will go well. Some people were wonderfully blessed for their faith. Some people were sawn in half. So we need to work out what the chapter is saying to us about faith. And the third thing, our third question is, how might we be people of faith? Especially given today, we're in a culture which regards faith as essentially um, unintelligent foolishness. And Hebrews chapter 11 says that to be a person of faith is eminently sensible. And yet you may have to go through the world being considered, accused, denigrated for having faith in Christ. So let's think about those three questions this morning, if you're scribbling something down. The first question is, why was Hebrews written? And to answer the question, we need to remember the whole book of Hebrews, which we've been looking at now. This is our 11th week. And the big question that was facing the original readers, you remember that many of them were Jews converted to Christianity, and they were greatly tempted to underestimate Christ because he couldn't be seen, whereas the temple around the corner could be seen, and so they were under great pressure to give up on Christ and to overestimate the temple, and especially all the ritual which the temple had been providing for them for such a long time. And they felt a certain loyalty to the temple, and they were struggling with this new loyalty to Christ. Uh, We know that into the world of the Old Testament basically came the Jewish man, Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah. 
and we know that he announced himself effectively to be the Son of God and he proved himself to be the Son of God. And then in his death, he wrapped up all the ritual of the temple in one death. And now the writer is appealing to his readers and is basically saying, here's the question, can you be a person of faith, not sight? Can you go on the promises? Can you live by the promises? Or do you have to live as somebody who sees a building, walks to the building, recognizes the ritual, and is dependent on the sights, the sounds, and the smells? Or can you walk by the promises? That's what the writer is really saying. So the first great reason for Hebrews chapter 11 is challenging the readers to be people who believe, who believe the promises. And the author does a masterly job of sweeping across some of the Old Testament believers to show that they lived by promises and didn't have a lot to go on in terms of what they saw or felt or experienced. And so not everything fell into place for the Old Testament believers. For example, Moses didn't get into the promised land. And not everything was on a plate for the Old Testament believers. Many of them had no worldly success at all. And many of them faced great opposition and even martyrdom for believing the promises. We read in verse 13 of chapter 11, they didn't receive the things promised. They lived their life with no earthly reward. But verse 40, God had planned something better, a city to come. Verse 16, So do you see Hebrews 11 fits exactly into the argument of the book of Hebrews because it's an appeal not to fall for the secular voice or even the religious voice which ignores the word of God and basically says to people, only believe what you see. If you miss what's in front of you, you're going to miss everything. And there's nothing more to come, so you might as well grab everything you can because that's all there is. And the message of the scripture is that if you will listen to the word of God, who is a very faithful and a very able God, and if you will trust him and go forward on the basis of his word, you will receive more than you could possibly receive by ignoring him. So in the end, everybody's got to go through the world, either living by the voice of the world or by living by the voice of the God who made the world. That's the choice we've got to make. That's why Hebrews 11 is written. Now, the second reason that Hebrews 11 is written, and this is perhaps even more stimulating, is the great answer to the pressure which is being placed on these original converts in the first century, these struggling believers, to be true to their ancestors. Imagine these converts who have a sense in which they have turned their back on the great Abraham Moses by now following the Christ of Christianity. And the pressure is on these new converts, maybe from their families and neighbors, who are basically saying to them, where's your loyalty? How can you give up on the great ones of the past, our ancestors, our forefathers? And so the writer of Hebrews is basically saying in chapter 11, okay, let's go back to the great forefathers Let's go back to these ancestors. Let's take a reporter and we'll climb into a time machine and we'll go back with a camera and a microphone and we'll ask these great ancestors, these great forefathers, what they want you to do. And if they say, stay with the temple and stay with the ritual, then that's what we'll do. 
And so the writer of Hebrews goes back to the ancestors, the forefathers, Abraham, Moses, and others, and the message from them loud and clear is you are to go forward as a pilgrim trusting the promises of God. You're not to go backwards. They would say to the first century believers, we also were looking for the Messiah. Now he's come, trust him. We're looking for the city beyond this world. Don't fall for this world. And so the very forefathers and ancestors who were being presented as the epitome of loyalty would be saying to these first century believers, go forwards, do not go backwards. And that's the context, therefore, of Hebrews chapter 11. It fits right into the argument. It's not free-floating. It's a very wonderful part of the argument. And God's people, we're being told in this chapter, are people of faith in the word, and they go forward by faith in the word. Yesterday I was speaking at a small conference for the Carlingford Church, and in the question time, uh, one of the members of the church, an Indian doctor, a pediatrician at the Westmead Hospital, he put his hand up and he said, I'm facing a huge amount of suffering, and I would be interested to know if you have anything to say to the people that I deal with and mix with who are looking for answers. Is there just one thing to say? Well, of course, that's just a massive and major question. But I remembered the little phrase of David Cook at the men's convention who said that the reason that the world is in the mess that it's in, and today's a good day to remember that, is because we're not in the garden anymore. We've left the garden. The garden is over. We're now between the garden and the city. And because we're outside the garden, we're not yet in the city, we're in a very difficult and fallen world. But God is faithful. He's going to move his people from the garden to the city. And therefore, the worst thing to do is to settle down with what we've got or to take your eyes off what he's promised will come. And that's very much what the writer here in Hebrews chapter 11 is saying. Don't take your eyes off what God has promised is round the corner. So that's the first. Why is the chapter here? The second is what does the chapter actually say? Well, the chapter says more than we can cope with in a few minutes but it is basically talking about faith. Now, friends, isn't it interesting that when we use the word faith and we say something like, you know, I have tremendous faith in my GP, the person who's listening to us goes to the object of our faith. They say, really, who is he? Who is she? What's the phone number? I'm looking for a good GP. They move from the word faith to the object But the sad thing is that when we talk about faith in religious circles and we say, I have tremendous faith in Christ, our listener says, how clever for you. They're interested in the subject. And so there is a kind of oddity about the word faith, isn't it? That normally faith means it has an object, but unfortunately in religious circles, people hear the word faith and they just think of the subject. And yet we are under pressure and we are keen to tell people that the object of our faith is the the God of the Bible, is the person of the Lord Jesus who has shown himself and spoken in such clear and unmistakable ways that we have made a decision which is extremely sane. Well, Hebrews 11 talks about the subject of faith. It introduces it in verses 1 to 3. It then gives some examples in verses 4 to 31, about 10 examples. 
And then there is a climax to finish where it makes an appeal. So um, let's just skim across this for a minute. Uh, If you fall asleep in the next few minutes, uh, get the recording of this talk and listen back. Um, I'll try and call you back to attention in a few minutes if you've completely gone to sleep. But uh, if you look at verse 1, it says, Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith means that you don't always get to see. How can this make sense? Well, because a huge amount of the way in which we live our lives and the decisions that we make is based on not what we see, but what we hear. We have faith, says the writer, in the fact that God made the world, but we weren't there to see it. And we have reasonable faith that God did make the world because it's a very, very weird thing to think that the world made itself. And we also have faith that God made the world because he tells us in the scriptures and we've learned to believe that the God of the Bible is a faithful God. So we weren't there to see the making of the world and yet we believe the world was made by God. At least I presume that's the majority of us here this morning. We believe that God made the world. It makes good logical sense and it makes good biblical sense. And you'll see the writer doesn't begin with a hero at the beginning of the chapter. He says, this is what we believe. We're the sort of people who believe what we don't see because there's a certain logic to what we're believing and there is a certain word that is standing under what we believe. So, of course, the secular voice says that the visible world made itself, but we have chosen to believe a different word, which is that God made the world. And we've got good reason to believe that. And now the first three verses are not exactly a textbook, but uh, it might be good before we go on to look at the examples for me to say to you very quickly about the subject of faith. In the end, every single person in the world has faith. Everybody has faith, whether they have faith in themselves or somebody else or something. Everybody who's sat in a pew this morning has put faith in the pew. The second thing is that every person's faith does have an object. You can't have faith free-floating. Faith is in an object. It could be the chair. It could be some authority. It could be the taxi who'll take you home. Whatever it is, you have faith in an object. The third thing is that faith is only as good as its object so that if you decide to skate out with huge faith on a pond with millimetre-thin ice, you'll almost certainly go through. And if you skate out on a pond with very little faith, but it's one metre thick, you'll almost certainly survive. Faith is as good as, as its object. The fourth thing to say about faith is that Christian faith is in the person and the promises of Christ. He's historical. He makes good, reasonable promises. It's a very reasonable faith. The last thing that God asks us to do is to unscrew our heads and leap into the dark. He very carefully persuades us before he asks us to commit. And the last thing to say about faith in a very general way is that it doesn't need visible proof to be trustworthy because if the word is trustworthy and the one who speaks the word is trustworthy, then faith in the one who speaks the word is wise. So most of our life is run on messages. That's the way the writer of Hebrews 11 is speaking. 
But he's got some examples of faith. The first one is Abel in verse 4, Abel in the Old Testament, who obviously took God seriously because he offered a sacrifice which pleased God. And then there is Enoch from Genesis chapter 5, and we're told that he pleased God because he also took God seriously. And then, of course, most of us know of Noah, Genesis chapter 7. He took God seriously because he built an ark. Why did he build an ark? Because he had a word from God to build an ark. And although the Bible never tells us that people laughed at Noah, they must have laughed at Noah because there he is building an ark in dry ground with no big storm on the way. But he's had a word from God that there is to be a storm and there is to be a flood and he acts on the word of God. So he takes God seriously. Somehow God persuaded him. Noah took him seriously and Noah was right to do it. There are three men who pay the price of taking God at his word. Now, Abraham is the classic example, verses 8 to 16, and he was a man of faith in three areas. One is that he left his home for the promised land, although he couldn't see it. And the second is he believed that God could produce a son, even though he and his wife were in their 90s. And the third is he was prepared eventually to sacrifice his son, even though God had told him that the son was going to be the key to the future. And uh, if we ask ourselves the question, why did Abraham leave home? The answer is he had a good word from God. And if we ask the question, why did he have a son? The answer is God said he would. And if we ask the question, why was he prepared to sacrifice his son? The very shocking, striking answer is that God told him to and he decided to be obedient. And F.F. Uh, F. Bruce says in his very good commentary, Abraham saw that it was God's responsibility to reconcile his promise you will have descendants, and his command, sacrifice your only son. Now, you see, if we could interview Abraham this morning up the front of the building, and if I could say to him, Abraham, when you left for the promised land, could you see it in the distance? He'd say, no. Could you see your wife's pregnancy? No. Could you see the solution to sacrificing your son? No. But I did know that God had spoken clearly, says Abraham, and I knew that he was a faithful God, and I knew that he was authoritative, and so I decided to act on his word. And all of these people, says the writer, looked forwards because they had the word behind them. And that's what Isaac did. He looked forward, and Jacob looked forward, and Joseph looked forward, and the writer lists all these people who looked forward. Now, part of looking forward, of course, is that you lose things in the present. You pay the price if you're going to follow Christ. Certain things will go, disappear. Moses, in verses 24 to 28, is a good example because Moses, deciding to take God seriously, said no to an Egyptian title. Imagine that would have been quite an offer. He also said no to opportunities to indulge himself like a pagan. I imagine with his power in Egypt, Moses could have had a tremendous time uh, indulging all the different aspects of the flesh. And Moses said, I'm taking the word of God seriously, which means I'm saying no to all the opportunities to be a man of the flesh. And uh, Moses also would have said no and turned his back on a huge amount of money. And he also would have knocked back a lot of power 
but he trusted the word of God. And the writer of Hebrews 11 says he escaped the destroyer and he crossed the Red Sea. And as they went down the track toward the promised land, those walls of Jericho, which were absolutely impenetrable, fell because God had made a statement. And uh, even Rahab, the prostitute who was living in the city, who'd heard the word of God from a distance and believed the word of God, decided to stand on the word of God and she was protected. So the great thing about this is the word of God, whether you're a mighty one or whether you're a sinful one, it's the word of God on which we stand. That's where our security is found. Now, I don't need to tell you that um, secular advertising is an absolute genius at telling you that you ought to seek your comfort and you ought to seek your security. And so there's a thousand very gifted voices in our ears telling us that we ought to be as comfortable as possible that we're not meant to take risks for Christ, that we're not meant to take up our cross, that we're meant to basically look after ourselves and be as secure as possible. And that's why you and I have to work out whether we're going to take seriously the voice of Christ or we're going to take seriously the voice of the world. Now, if you do take the voice of God seriously, the question is, will you be victorious? Will you be successful Will you solve all your problems? And the answer in Hebrews 11 is yes, sometimes. And the writer gives 10 examples of people like Daniel and Elijah, whom God wonderfully vindicated in the immediate, in the present. But the Bible also says that if you're going to take the word of God seriously and you're going to take up your cross and follow Christ, you'll also must expect some suffering and some loss. And the writer gives 10 examples of people like Isaiah and Jeremiah, who basically the world slaughtered. And the point at the very end of the chapter, if you look at verses 39 to 40, is these were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised because God had planned something better so that only together with us they would be made perfect. You can see, friends, why Hebrews chapter 11 is such a masterful chapter, because these Jewish converts couldn't possibly have read this chapter without being persuaded that their great heroes of the faith were people who walked by faith, not by sight, and went forward not backwards, looking for the Messiah and looking for the city to come, which is exactly what the gospel has called them to do. And uh, when we read, of course, in the New Testament that God is for us and that he who gave up his son for us, how much more could he do for us? We discover that it's an eminently wise thing to be a Christian. The third and the last thing this morning is how might we be people of faith? How might we be people of faith? The first thing to say is that we need to be aware that there is a God-given word called the Bible. I'm sorry if I have to go back and be absolutely elementary, but just in case there's anyone who doesn't 
register this. We need to be aware that there is a God-given word, which is called the Bible, which is going to tell you the truth about God and yourself and about your salvation and about your priorities and about the future. And there is a very, very strong contradictory voice coming in my ears all the time from my own sinfulness and from the world and from the devil. And I have to choose on an hour by hour, day by day basis, which voice I'm going to take seriously. And you have to do the same. So maybe there's a particular sinful issue that you're wrestling with at the moment. And basically it boils down to what does God say? What do you say? Maybe there's a particular temptation that's facing you, and in the end, it will boil down to what do you think, what does God say? And that's the way we have to live our Christian life. And when we take the Word of God seriously, costly it is, we discover that there is a loving God who's communicating. Second, we need to recognize that if we heed the Word of God, that it will not impress worldly people. When you pay the price of taking the word of God seriously and rejecting certain pleasures which others are enjoying and when you decide to reject certain promotions which others are being offered and when you decide to turn your back on a certain pathway which is very available to you or maybe you're not doing this for yourself but you're doing this for your children or your grandchildren, you can't expect the world to look and say that's really sensible. And uh, there'll be those conversations where people will say to you, how are your children? How are your grandchildren? Are they making lots of money? And you'll say, well, actually, they're not making lots of money. They're getting ready for ministry. They're getting ready for mission. No, they're not actually making a lot of money and keeping it. They're actually making a lot of money and giving it to gospel work. And you'll never really be able to expect the secular mind to grasp what the Bible is calling us to do. The people of Hebrews 11 were not insane. They were sane, but they were not appreciated. And the third thing is that uh, if there are people, and there are in this church, who swap their house for maybe a tent in mission, or they swap their expensive holidays for advancing the gospel, or they swap being famous for being anonymous, one of our missionaries, I suspect, could be very famous in this city, but is almost anonymous. Or maybe you'll be the sort of person who decides that you won't serve yourself, you'll serve others instead. Let me encourage you by saying that you will have all eternity to reflect on that decision with great gratitude to God. You will be glad for eternity that you made that choice and that you took the word of God seriously. You'll never look back and say, I'm sorry I did that. You could look back and say, I'm sorry I didn't do that, but you'll never look back and say, I'm sorry I took the word of God seriously. And the fourth and last thing is to say that uh, people who seem to lose everything for Christ will one day, and this is a promise from God, will one day be seen to have virtually lost nothing in the light of what they've gained. I'm not saying that you gain because you lose, You gain because Christ has won it for you. But when you lose in the light of what Christ has won for you, you'll be seen one day to have virtually lost nothing and have gained so much at his expense. Now, friends, um, this week, I hesitate to tell you this, but this week I went for a little mini checkup, as I was called to do, 
And the um, lady got out a tape measure and she measured my waist and I've moved into the green warning zone for fatness. And um, this is basically because physical fat creeps up and it creeps up the older you get faster. And um, there is no easy answer, is there, to physical fat except to take some serious action And there is no real easy answer to spiritual fatness, which creeps up much the same. And if you're like me, it's very, very easy to get physically fatter, and it's very easy to get spiritually fatter as well. And I think the spiritual fatness creeps up because we hear things, but we don't act on them. They just go in one ear and out the other. And a kind of a spiritual fatness gathers around us where nothing really seems to get exercised. But we need to exercise on the promises of God and the warnings of God and the commands of God. And that's why these verses of Hebrews chapter 11 are not for us to look at this morning and say, how nice, but to ask a very simple question, and that is this. Is there any way that if I was to watch your life this week or you were to watch my life this week, we would observe that the word of God was actually shaping the way you think and live? This is the sobering question, isn't it? Is my lifestyle between this Sunday and next Sunday in any particular way a shock to the world? because it's being lived by the word of God and not by the word of the world? Or is my life just a little shadow of the world? I think it's worth you and me asking this question, whether we're just a little shadow of the world, basically living like the rest of the world with some information stored up here, or whether that word of God is actually shaping the way we think and shaping the way we live. We know for certain that God has planned something better for us, And he's planned it at great expense through his son. We will be there one day. Now is our opportunity to show that we are taking seriously what God says in his word. Let's ask him to help us to do it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've spoken so plainly in scripture. And we thank you again for giving us the scriptures in our own language so accessible. And there are certain things in the word which you have said we know so well. We pray that you would forgive us for listening more keenly to other voices. And we pray that you would help us to have very sensitive and obedient ears to the word which you've plainly set forward. We ask that you would help us, Heavenly Father, even in these next hours, to be conscious of what we know in the Scriptures and then to do it. We pray that you would give us courage in the face of testing and in the face of temptation and in the face of scoffing and in the face of cost. We pray that as we put our trust in our great Saviour and Lord, that you would help us to walk in his steps with great joy And we ask that you would fill us with hope and fill us with faith and fill us with love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.